Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 218. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot co backslash PMC. And Quarter, whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out, and that's Quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. We are excited to host our first in-person event in nearly three years. The Planet Microcap Showcase is back in Las Vegas on May 3rd through the 5th, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other. It's time to network in person. Let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Edwin Dorsey the author of the Bear Cave newsletter. As long as it's not illegal, if you're making money in the stock market, either trading, shorting, long-term investor, whatever it is, that's awesome. And I hope you continue to do so. One strategy that I think gets unfairly thought of is short selling, the idea of making a bet that a company will fail or over time decrease in value. I think this is unfair because some of the best investors in the world are short sellers and provide insightful, valuable research to help us avoid making serious mistakes. Now, some of you may be under the impression that Edwin's newsletter is all about short reports and exposing frauds. But what I learned most from Edwin, who I think is a superstar and the sky's the limit for him, is that he's exposing companies that may in time be frauds and or good shorts, but more importantly, are providing bad customer experiences. No matter the strategy, if it involves some qualitative due diligence, customer experience can be everything to the success or failure of a business. It's this point we talk about at length, Edwin's research process that locks in on uncovering this differential insight. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 218 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Edwin Dorsey. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. You can find them at streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot co backslash PMC. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, 
please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today, no introduction necessary, but I still gave an introduction, so you can hear that a little earlier. But I got Edwin Dorsey joining me. He's the author of the Bear Cave Newsletter. Edwin, great to have you on, man. How you doing? Robert, I'm doing great. I'm even more excited to be here for the Planet Microcap podcast. So thanks for having me on. No way, man. You are not more excited than I am. But listen, you've been the Bear Cave has has really kind of been a phenomenon. You've hosted some spaces that I've been a huge fan of. You know, be, you know, not 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 a comment whether on the stock was a, a short and or a long, but just great conversations talking about stocks that I think are really beneficial for folks to listen in and, and learn more about. But before we get into all that on your, you know, the, your criteria for an ideal short and all that good stuff that everybody wants to hear, I'd love to get your, your, your background. You know, where, where did your passion for investing begin? Bobby, absolutely. I've been passionate about stocks from a really young age. Like in second grade, I was all about the stock market. From a really young that, age. How old you're like just you just graduated second grade. I mean, for those watching, the guy there's no facial hair. I mean, this guy just just graduated. Uh, yeah, I'm 23 now, but second grade, I was all into the stock market. My grandmother put a little bit of money in an E-Trade account and just gave me the username and password so I could invest real money for her. And of course, I had no idea what I was doing, but that that was a lot of fun. And I, I was a little good at it. So then other family members were like, hey, can I give you the password and username for my Schwab account, my retirement account? And I just started investing like a lot of my different family members' money and it, it did fairly well. And then in senior year of high school, I put a lot in Valiant when it was like 100 a share and it went up to 250 and then down to like 10. And that, that was kind of my lesson in that sometimes things aren't what they seem and you, you can't always trust management. And that got me a little more interested in the short side senior year. And then I looked for the other Valiants and I started blogging about a company called Malincrot, which raised drug prices from $40 a vial to $40,000 a vial. And then that got the attention of some short sellers. So because I was blogging online, like freshman year of college, uh, just by coincidence, I, I met two of the best short uh, hedge fund managers out there, Mark Cajotes, who's like independent in Northern California, and Jim Carruthers, who ran a short only fund called Sophos. And he became an amazing mentor to me. I interned for him on and off throughout all four years of college. Um, and then when I was graduating, uh, instead of, you know, joining a fund, I started my own newsletter uh, towards the end of senior year and it just caught off. And that's what I'm doing now. So I have a very odd lifestyle and life path, but I've been passionate about stocks forever uh, and the short side since at least freshman year of college. Awesome. All right. So there's a couple of rabbit holes I want to go down here in second grade. What what was it about the market? Like what, 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 what were you like? All right. I love this. Are you a numbers guy? Did you just, did you see a family member who was in it that you're like, wow, that looks like fun and a lot of action there. You know, what was it? So I didn't have really any family members who are in the market. I was always really good at math and loved math. Uh, and, and the market is great for people who are curious. There's kind of like an infinite amount of stuff to learn. So I, you know, I, I just had this huge curiosity about everything. Uh, I, I think I would just buy hundreds of baseball cards and would try to like organize them in like every possible like statistic way possible and just like memorize all these like obscure things. Uh, so so I, it was just just a combination of numbers and curiosity. And uh, I think it's cool when you just have a track record that the numbers speak for themselves. There's not a lot of human discretion on determining whether or not you did a good job, like on an essay, a teacher is grading it. With the market, <laughs> your kind of returns speak for yourself. So everyone can think you're crazy or you're an oddball or contrarian, but if your returns are great, your returns are great. and They can't criticize it. This is true. This is true. All right. So then, in, and then senior year, you know, you, you just told that story with Valiant. Um, so what was it about that experience where you're like, all right, I want to understand short selling now a lot more, you know, what, what, what drew you that, what drew you there? 
So I just remember vividly, Andrew left. First, Roddy Boyd put out a story on Valiant and the stock started to fall. And then Andrew left as Citron put out a report that I think intraday sent Valiant stock down 40% because he was talking about Philidor, which no one really knew about at the time. And I, I was in my like high school, like a, a ceremony or something, an award ceremony. And I leave to go buy more Valiant stock because I think, oh, this Andrew left has no idea what he's talking about. What is this? Philidor. Now it's at like eight times cash flow. This is a great long. And I just like totally had no idea what I was doing. And I read all of Bill Ackman's like public info on Valiant. And I thought I was really informed, but it just like woke me up to no one really knows what they're like. A lot of people don't know what's actually going on. Tons of people have a superficial understanding. Tons of people understand what management is communicating. But a lot of times there's just this consensus group think that's wrong and no one's done the actual deep work. So once Valiant collapsed, I just decided, well, let me see if I can find the next Valiant because there's got to be more than one of these. So I quickly zoomed in on Mallinckrodt, which had raised drug prices from $40 to $40,000 a vial for their main drug, Acta. Uh, and that's just kind of what, what, what tuned me into. There's a lot of these situations in the market where just everybody has this consensus group think that's wrong. I mean, was that something that you saw as well? Because I mean, look, I mean, you mentioned some legendary short short sellers, you know, earlier that were your, your inspirations. But I mean, it, that's usually not that that's just not been uh, uh, really around. It, I mean, you're in a secular bull market for the last 10 years. Everyone's like, why are you focusing on shorts as a secular bull market? What's wrong with you? you know, not that there is, you know, but at the same time, like I also grew up with my dad always saying, hey, you know, the only natural buyer is a short, you know? So uh, it, I, I don't know, like what, what, what still drew you to it? Because it's one thing to now see, okay, value, and then some of these other ideas. But now you're like, all right, I'm in it now. I, I just want to find frauds like, and write about it. You know. So what was that? So I would say two things on that. First, my two early mentors, Mark Cahotas and Jim Crothers, who I met right at the beginning of freshman year, we're, we're both two of like the best short sellers in the world, the best at doing deep dive research on frauds. And if start of freshman year of college, two, two of your mentors are the best at something, you're going to gravitate towards that thing. So if I had two great mentors who are private equity barons, and I would have shifted into private equity. If I had two great mentors who are really into microcaps, I might be here talking about microcaps. If I, I had two great mentors who are like great at like construction, I might be in the construction industry. But two of my earliest great mentors were short sellers. So they pulled me to the dark side. They showed me the ropes. And that's why I gravitated towards that. The second thing that I think really cemented it for me was the whole Care.com incident, which I, I'm sure you know about. But there was this babysitting platform called Care.com. I started researching them. I published a post on it that went viral and caused a lot of change and controversy. Uh, and when all was said and done, th 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 that kind of cemented my reputation in the short world. What was that experience like? I mean, you write your first post, or not your first, sorry, it's not your first, but like you write a post, all of a sudden like, oh shit, this just went viral. Like what, you know, what, what was that? What was that like? So I'll back up a little, and just so you, your audience knows what Care.com is. Care.com is the largest babysitting platform in the U.S. They had like a billion dollar market cap. They were publicly traded at the time. And uh, I was home, I believe after freshman summer, and one of my friends was a babysitter on the platform. And she's like, hey, something seems off about this platform. Like they don't seem to be doing the safety checks they claim to be doing. Like you should poke around and look into it. And, you know, I'm a freshman interested in stocks. And so I, I just go on Pacer to see lawsuits against the company. And I see they've been sued a lot of time by parents claiming safety issues. And then I see there's a lot of local news reporting against care.com for safety issues and babysitters who'd like gone care.com babysitters who'd gone on to hurt kids. They were hired to babysit. And the company's big claim is they claim to be vetting their babysitters. This is important. A babysitting platform has to have good safety. So I decided to test out care.com safety by trying to sign up as Harvey Weinstein. So I use a photo of Harvey Weinstein. I make up an email address, a social security number, make up everything. I document the whole process. Care.com has you consent to a background check and I submit my application and they're like, well, we'll get back to you in 48 hours on whether or not your Harvey Weinstein account passes our background check. And I'm like, there's no way they approve it. 
and they approve it. And the Harvey Weinstein's a babysitter on care.com. I get CPR certified. I get like their highest level of authenticity. And they, they just weren't doing the safety checks they claimed to be doing. And, you know, I write it all up. I put it out in a little report. Of course, it goes a little viral on Twitter. The stock falls, a board member resigns. And that would have been the end of it. Except the co-founder of the company decides to like send a letter to my house and calls Stanford to complain about me. And Stanford had ties to Care.com where a bunch of Stanford donors were on Care.com's board. And that for whatever reason, Stanford's like, we got to look into this student. So the dean of students meets with me and says, your report violated our Wi-Fi policy. You violated care.com's terms of service on Stanford Wi-Fi. You need to take this report down now. Get There's the hell out of here. Standards investigation, blah, blah, wow. blah. And of course, you know, what does that make me do? I say, I'm not taking it down and I'm going to look further into them. And, you know, I keep writing about them. I keep write, I keep doing research. I file FOIA requests with every state attorney general for consumer complaints against care.com. I put out another report that's on Medium and got a lot of attention. And then I send it to like 150 journalists. Uh, two of whom were at the Wall Street Journal. They get interested. They start researching the company. And to make a long story short, they end up like publishing a front page story in the Wall Street Journal about how Care.com babysitters with criminal histories have like killed eight kids. They were hired to babysit. The CEO, CFO, general counsel all resigned. The stock fell by like 60% and then got acquired by IAC, which did fix some of the issues. Care.com sent a private investigator to my house to like try to dig up dirt on me. And uh, and it kind of just at a really young age gave me a little bit of a reputation, at least on Twitter, for being someone who can do real research and dig and have somewhat of a positive impact and also showed me, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn too much, but, you know, this made a real impact. If I hadn't, you know, gone out and done this deep research on care.com and ignored Stanford, like, you know, none of this would have come out or would have come out a lot later. So you can actually have a real tangible impact on the world just by, you know, researching a company, writing about the problems and trying to get society to pay attention. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. Oh, I've super listen, I've always said, I mean, and 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 I, I love the long, long only investors that we've had on the pod and they do incredible research. But I think something that really goes gets overlooked is that, you know, short sellers do great research. You do, you know, and, and it's not like you're out there looking for something to, you know, uh, destroy. But like if you happen to come across an idea where you're like, well, this is kind of weird. Like your just natural curiosity is like, all right, well, I want to understand this a little bit better, you know? So I, I think that's, that's something that, that I, I hope most folks are starting to, you know, uh, uh, overlook or not. I don't know if it's overlook. Uh, that might not be the right word, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think, I think there used to be a big stigma. And I think that's slowly going away as people see the work short sellers do in aggregate is really positive for society. Now there are bad actors. Sure. I think one example of a really bad short report was Harry Markopoulos, the Bertie Madoff whistleblower, like came out and said GE's a fraud and registered the domain gefraud.com and just like started spewing nonsense. And I, I don't know, that was kind of embarrassing. But overall, I think shorts do do a really positive service to the yeah. world. In some capacity, it's almost like journalism. I would say like what I do with the Bear Cave is, you know, pretty close to real journalism or like, you know, is closer to, but, but, but what shorts do is also similar to journalism where you're just, you, you know, you're taking a position usually, but you're, you're just researching a company, talking to former employees, calling a bunch of people and then writing a story. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting how that works. Was that was that the one that you're most proud of? I, I, our one of our Twitter followers uh, at Guy LeBlanc asked that one. Uh, so Care.com, I'm extremely proud of. It was the most proud. It's the thing I'm most proud of that I did. But that predated the Bear Cave. In terms of a, a Bear Cave report, I'm really proud of. Uh, you know that that might be Roblox, which I did recently because that had an impact, or um, maybe the joint, just because that works so well. But uh, th- those are two ones that I'm pretty proud of, but care.com is definitely the thing I'm most proud of. And that has had a biggest impact on me. Very cool. All right. So I want to get to then, you know, from, from all this experience, you graduate Stanford, probably reluctantly after all, <laughs> everything they put you through. Um, but then you launched the bear cave newsletter. Tell us about that. And, you know, maybe, maybe some of the economics around it, because you were actually pretty public about it. And I think that's really fascinating. Uh, absolutely, Bobby. So it's February 2020. I've been inter- I'm a senior in college, and I've been interning at Sophos for a while. But Sophos, you know, isn't in a capacity to take a full time employee because they're kind of gyms getting old and they're planning to close down. Uh, so you know, I, I don't know who I'm going to work for. I'm talking to all these New York City hedge funds, but I, I can just tell I don't vibe fully well. They're more suit and tie, let's model type people, and I'm very individualistic. So I hear about Substack and people earning a lot of money with email newsletters. And I know from my experience that writing online is a great way to meet people. So I decide just to start this newsletter called The Bear Cave in February 2020, which would just talk about what's going on in the activist short world. Maybe I'd write about things myself. And my original game plan was, look, I'm going to publish this newsletter. I'm going to get everyone on Wall Street to read it. And then everyone will want to hire me. So see, I'm smart, energetic, and can do real work because it's tough to get people to take you seriously, freshman, like when you're young. Um, so I'm starting this in February 2020 as, as a senior college. In March 2020, the pandemic hits and everything gets shut down. I graduate a quarter early from Stanford. And now all of a sudden I'm at home. I have a ton of free time. And I just decide, you know, like, let, let's see if I can make this newsletter work. It was getting traction. I, D, I literally DM like, you know, all 8,000 people that were following me on Twitter, asking them to sign up for the newsletter. I make a list of every college investment club in the U.S. Us and email all cold email all of them asking them to sign up for the newsletter and I got to like two thousand signups within you know three months and, and that was good and then I just kept putting more time into the newsletter and people were reading it they liked it it's like a unique way to find about the short world I was publishing mini investigations into companies that would go viral and sometimes even move a stock which was crazy to me and and then you know four or five months in. Uh, people were like, you know, you should charge for this. You should, I'd pay for this. And after the 10th person is like, you, you know, you should be having a paid tier. Uh, I, I thought th- this could actually work as a paid business. Um, and so instead of going to work for a fund and using the newsletter as a stepping stone for a fund, I, I decided to try and see if it would work as a standalone business. And I launched paid subscriptions. Right now, the free tier, you just get a recap every Sunday of new activist reports, like interesting resignations from the last week, interesting articles and like cool tweets from Fintwit. So like the Sunday free issue is more of like my curation of events. And then the paid tier, which is now $44 a month or four dollars a year. Uh, twice a month on the first and third Thursday, I, I publish a little bit of a deep dive on a company that's misleading investors or hurting customers, usually US listed one to $5 billion market cap. And within like two months of launching paid subscriptions, it was already earning $100,000 a year. Everybody who signed up loved it. They're like, no, this is fun to read. It's cool. Your research style is interesting. And I'm like, okay, uh, you know, I got this super fast growing business. I'm 21 or 22. Like, let's stick with it and see where it goes. And and now I've been writing this newsletter for uh, almost two years and people uh, seem to like it. It has 25,000 people on the free tier, 1,000 people on the paid. Uh, and I, I, I kind of used my audience from the first newsletter to launch a second newsletter uh, four months ago called Idea Brunch, where I interview emerging hedge fund managers. And that's done really well. There's already 3,500 people on the free and about 500 on the paid. 
Uh, so, you know, I'm, you know, the, the economics work really well. I, 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 and the lifestyle is perfect. I'm 23. You know, I can sleep in as much as I want. I can do whatever I want. I don't have a boss. It's not too time consuming. Um, so, and like, I, I think email newsletters are the best businesses in the world for a few other reasons that we can talk about, but I, I rambled long enough on the bear kit. No, what's I well, firstly, congratulations, man. Like that's really that's just really cool. I mean, you're 23 years old. You got two successful newsletters out the gate. I mean, you could go live in, uh, you go live on a beach in Mexico and, and not retire. You could still work, you know, because, and, and I think, you know, that doesn't just speak to, you know, your own talent, but I think it also talks about how amazing, you know, the platform is too, you know, and, and this is not a paid sponsorship, you know, of Substack or anything, but I, I, I we were talking offline how and this is a hot take, but I think that they're one of the most disruptive companies out there and, and being able to help and a 23 year old recent graduate who has talent and is a good writer to, to, to basically call his own shot, you know? So that's pretty, that, that's just pretty interesting how they're changing the newsletter game. Absolutely. None of this could have happened if Substack didn't exist. For people who don't know, Substack is this really cool company that makes it insanely easy to start a paid email newsletter. Basically, all I do is I upload a Word doc to their like email platform and they take care of the formatting. They have a website that it's logistically complicated to send 25,000 emails out, but they make it super easy. They're, they deal with the billing on the back end. They, they basically say, if you want to write an email newsletter and just like focus on the writing and not all the other website billing and other stuff, you know, use our platform. You still own the relationship. You have their billing info. You can leave us at any time. You get the email addresses, but we'll just take a 10% cut of all the paid revenue. And it's like the biggest no-brainer in the world. I'm, I'm a huge, huge, huge Substack fan. And part of the reason I'm so bullish on email newsletters, uh, Bobby, and I think they're such great businesses, uh, first... People are like, we're kind of in inning one of the email newsletter revolution. I, I, I say it's almost like streaming where, you know, 10 years ago, people are like, well, why would I pay for streaming when I can just rent a DVD or I can stream illegally online? Then people get used to streaming and then you get used to paying for like two streaming services and then you get used to paying a lot for streaming services. And that's what it's kind of like with email newsletters where people are like, well, why would I pay for an email newsletter when I can get the content for free elsewhere online? And then you're like, well, this is actually good content. Let me pay for one. And then okay, I'm going to pay for multiple and expense policies for like, you know, professional workers get worked around. So getting email newsletters is more normalized. It just becomes more of a thing. People are comfortable for paying email newsletters and then paying for multiple. And then soon people are going to be comfortable paying $800 for like a professional email newsletter that helps their job, uh, helps them do their job better. So that's one reason I'm so bullish on the future of email newsletters. It's like people are slow. We're just in the first inning of people getting used to paying for this type of stuff. And, and think about it, man. It's like, you know, I compare it to, you know, a New York Times subscription, right? With, with um, where, you know, you might have those one or two writers that you just really like, like, it, let's, let's say Jason Schweig or, you know, one of them. I, I'm pretty sure he doesn't have a Substack yet, but uh, yet, but, you know, let's say, you know, you're buying a subscription for that, but you don't, you're not interested in reading everything that Wall Street Journal or sorry, New York Times, Wall Street Journal has, but you just like that one writer and that's why you're subscribing. You know, that's where I agree with you that this, it's going where, I mean, you're already starting to see it. I mean, from Mark's, you know, from across, across everything from Mark Stein, Barry Weiss, like all of them, they're going to Substack and they're building huge businesses off this technology, which I, I like I said, I, I think, I, I just think back to the days of, you know, or not to the days, but, you know, we still have a MailChimp account and having to like properly, you know, have it have to pay for a nice design and then you have to customize it every single week. And then you got to work through all the issues with email and, you know, balances, all that kind of stuff when like, you don't want to deal with that. I just want to make the content. Like I want to focus more of my time on that. So. So, so Bobby, one thing I find fascinating about Substacks is we've seen this trend where a great writer goes, starts their own Substack publication, their own email newsletter, and then gets a lot of traction, gets tens of thousands of emails, gets a lot of paid subscribers. They might be earning $200,000, $300,000. And what you almost always see with somebody who has a successful email newsletter is they just get hyper-focused on growing that newsletter. They try to get to $400,000, $500,000, $600,000, which kind of makes sense. It 
is how like most people think about it. And maybe you make a Discord server for your community or something. My, my take on why email newsletters are so valuable is a little different. So I got Faircave. It's, you know, doing very well financially. And, you know, most people would say just only focus on growing that. I think what's so valuable about the Bear Cave isn't that you have so many people on recurring billing for this product. It's that now you have an audience of 25,000 people who read the free version, 1,000 people who read the paid version, who you can kind of, I don't want to say cross-sell to, but they trust you. They read your news that you have a relationship with them. You can now sell them other products that are like kind of related and add value in a similar domain. So like no email newsletter authors do this. And I think everybody's thinking about it wrong. But like, if you look at a software company, they hook you on one software product and then all they try to do is sell you other products. And when it's done well, it adds a lot of value like Salesforce. And when it's done poorly, you just think they're money grubbers. But if you could take your audience relationship and start selling them other products that add a lot of value and like create basically a suite of products around your domain like that's how you're going to build a billion dollar company and that's kind of what i want to do so bear cave 25,000 people on the free thousand on the parade open rates are crazy like 50 60 percent um Take that, and then I launch Idea Brunch, which is just every Sunday, 1 p.m., I publish a written interview with an emerging hedge fund manager, generally someone with great returns, managing under $500 million, who's wicked smart. I ask them five or six questions. They type up answers, including their best ideas, and I send it out in an email newsletter every Sunday. And that has, you know, after just four months, uh, 3,000 people on the free, 500 on the paid, is doing around 40K in revenue, but it's like, 99% retention and growing like crazy. Uh, that's going to be an absolutely huge, huge product eventually. And like, I could only start that if I had the existing newsletter and that audience to cross sell to. And then you're going to have two newsletters and, you know, you got this even bigger audience and more trust and like people who love reading your things. You can sell them on a third product and the third product doesn't need to be a newsletter. It can be like an educational platform or something like that, or you can create a conference. And that's what I think eventually we're going to see more and more where you, you kind of look at the YouTube ecosystem and the great YouTubers, what do they do? They don't just focus on like having one great YouTube channel, like Mr. Beast, they'll have six different YouTube channels and then they'll have like physical kind of related products for their audiences. And that's what you're going to see. If the newsletter authors execute successfully, you're going to see one email newsletter, then a complimentary second newsletter that adds value in kind of a related field. And you should build out a suite of products that like helps your audience, all different like paid products. And that's how you're going to see like these newsletter authors really become billion dollar brands. And I think I have the potential to do that and i think other people nice. do too i love it man i love I, I i i i'm wishing you all the success and and i hope you know you you get there too and uh we should we should talk about doing a premium pod i mean come on you're doing all these in doing all these interviews with the with hedge fund managers like what well you're not you don't want to get in the pod game what, what's the deal so so bobby actually i thought a lot about podcasts versus email newsletters here's why i think my model of the interview newsletters are better than your model of interview podcasts. let's so go back, let's go here's here here's my view on why inter i like the interview newsletter game first it's just a lot easier for everybody when you okay. do an interview news that's no no doubt that right there is 100% true. <laughs> I, I, I can just put literally five, six questions in a Word doc, email it to someone. They write answers on their own time and send it back. And on a podcast, you need to schedule the same time. It's tough for people with kids. You need a quiet environment. There's more prep that goes into it. There's more editing. There's all this other stuff. And then in podcasts, you know, answers tend to be longer. People ramble, ums, ahs, whatever. In writing, you write it and then you sleep on it. You add stuff, you edit it. It's a lot more concise. And particularly in the finance world where time is limited for people like the interviews are generally easier to consume faster you can control f and just find the parts you want like where people talk about ideas for you know that's what most people care about but you know you it's a lot more searchable email newsletters are also in my opinion a lot more forward forwardable than podcasts you get the distribution direct to your inbox and you forward it to whoever on average every person who gets the newsletter as a subscriber forwards it to one person so it kind of grows really naturally. And then the final thing is email newsletters are really easy to charge for. Uh, like I charge 70 a year for idea brunch and like people have no problem paying for that. It's kind of a no brainer. 
And but podcasts, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's a stigma. I don't know if it's the logistics of it. It's a lot tougher to charge for a podcast. I don't even know many that are like successful. You you kind of rely on advertising and advertising is such a headache. And, you know, the monetization can still work, but it's a little lower. Uh, so I, I think email newsletters have all these like huge advantages. It's a better product for a reader. It's a lot easier for the person being interviewed. Like everybody wants to be interviewed. It's a lot easier to monetize. It's a lot easier to grow naturally um so bobby maybe you disagree i think there are no, actually look i'll tell you i'll tell you in, in fairness uh you know we're in the process of, of launching a newsletter um that that isn't going to be written interview kind of kind of stuff you know we're going to be sharing you know you know you follow me long enough you know how i publish a ton of content so i need to kind of aggregate it somewhere and push it out so that so we're, we're working on that right now but the one pushback i will say on um that i and I agree with everything that you just said, by the way, yeah. like there is definitely a lot of advantages to concise. It's clean. It's way easier as, you know, as doing what do we have? I think four or five shows right now. Um, but the one thing that I do really love about podcast versus maybe a written interview is that it, and maybe this is just my style versus others that are more like buttoned up and like they have a set number of questions and stuff like that. But it allows for a lot more free form, new potential ideas, things that might not have been discussed otherwise or brought up because it's just happening in that conversation right then and there. But to be fair, listen, you're not wrong it, on, on advertising side of things. It's uh, it can it's definitely a lot easier to get folks uh, uh, tied into a newsletter versus working with all these different advertisers. Luckily, I've been doing it for 11 years now, <laughs> working with yeah. advertisers, not just on podcasts, but on, on our events and, and our, uh, our magazine. But um, there, th I think there's, I think there's going to be a new way in which I think there might be some kind of combination or merge um, that I think might be coming or maybe folks are starting that are way smarter than me are starting to do. Um, but I think podcast wise, I think it's just on the marketing side. It's a great, it, it really is. There's second to none when you can finally just, you know, you hear those person's thoughts right then and there, you hear yeah. what the thing you see, you know, they're a real person. It's not just, you know, someone that's, you know, behind the computer writing, which, you know, Hey, not everybody needs to do that because they're, they're great writers and they're very good marketers as well. Um, but then there, but on the podcast side, like, you know, like for me personally, I feel that I benefit more because I'm not as great of a writer as maybe as you or some of our other colleagues, like for me, it, it works more because, you know, I feel like I, I feel like my strength is just getting on here and I could bullshit for days, you know? So like, that's, that's my, that, that's my take. It's an so those agreement. are great points. You definitely get the more human aspect through a podcast. I always joke with young people who say, like, what should I do? Start a podcast or start an interview newsletter because everybody likes being invited to podcasts and interviews. Everyone likes kind of talking about themselves. And it's an amazing way to network. Like, you know, you've met with hundreds and hundreds of people. It's like for any young person who wants to know what they should do, start a podcast. People usually don't care how big the audience is, frankly. They just like to talk. And it's like how you can get Get to know everybody and like get all these relationships and so many it's opportunities. It's the perfect hedge. It's the perfect hedge. You know, you start, I mean, I know so many people like you that, you know, like, all right, I need to stand out. You know, maybe I want to go work on buy side or even sell side. Um, and you know what, in my way to stand out, to show that I'm somewhat competent or capable or willing to learn, Hey, I'm going to start a blog or I'm going to start a newsletter. Or I'm going to start a podcast. And then now that ends up becoming my CV, you know, or not, or you just build yeah. a business because you're kicking ass. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's kind of a no brainer for any yeah. 18 year old talented 19 year old to try sure. to start one of these. And the thing is, if it fails, you know, you lose nothing. That's what I kind of look for. in all these business ventures I try to start, I always look for things that are infinitely scalable. Like you, you can totally really hit it out of the park if it works. And if it fails, it doesn't take too much time. Like you might know this. One of the other kind of products I mentioned, I tried to start to build out the suite is like a, a job board because 
least in my view, job boards are very complementary to email newsletters. You get you get your newsletter audience in a domain. Why can't I build a job board for hedge fund internships? Because I have a lot of young people who read it. I have hedge funds who read it. I'll just say, oh, everybody go to this job board and you know make job postings for like you know first year analysts and stuff. And everyone comes to I named it bullpencareers.com. And, you know, that, that didn't work because it turns out if you advertise job openings in an email newsletter, they often go to spam. So I couldn't really promote it in the email newsletter. And people were more reticent to like publish job postings on a job board. But I love these like little unique businesses you can start. And if it fails, like it costs like $500 for the software to build a job board. It's so easy. And, but if it, it worked, you know, there you can be it totally hits it out of the park. So Anyways, that's a little bit of a tangent, but people should start podcasts. People should start these businesses with low amounts of friction. I, I mean, look, I, I love the, the hey, it's one of the great things about living, you know, where we do in the U.S. as opposed to other parts of the world, you know, just freedom of speech, being able to capitalism, you know, being able to just start your own ventures and do it, you know, and if, if and then at the end of the day, if you're good, it'll stand out, you know, mm-hmm. but, but anyways, I want to get I, I, that was we went on a nice tangent there talking about the economics and newsletters and podcasts. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should do that again sometime. That, that, that was good stuff. But uh, for those that that you know somehow aren't subscribers already to the Bear Cave, I, I said this at the beginning, and uh, you know, listen, it took a little longer to get here, but here we are. Um, what what is your criteria for that ideal short setup? You know. So for the reports for articles for paid subscribers, which come out on the first and third Thursday, the first thing I would say is I personally don't bet against any of the companies I write about. I don't short any of the companies I write about. And I would maybe take a step back and say, I don't even view these as explicit short recommendations. Yes, you know, a lot of hedge funds read this, but I I kind of view what I do as like the beginning of stages of research for uh, people. So I I hope people don't read my thing and then say, oh, absolutely, I'm going to just short it now and see how it does over the next year. I hope what happens is people read my articles and say, huh, this is interesting. I learned something new. I learned a new like research tool. This is something I haven't heard about. I'm going to dig in more and see if this is a good short potentially for me. So I hope my, you know, article newsletter is the first step of a research process and not the entire research process for someone. It's educational. It's fun. It's a little like journalism. It is totally not like me saying, go short this thing. Now, in terms of companies, I try to focus on one to five, like the ideal thing is something one to $5 billion market cap. Above that range, you tend to have more legitimate companies. If something's a $20 billion company, it's usually like, once you get to that stage, it's really tough to be like a complete fraud or fall 80%. Below a billion dollars, people just tend to care less because there's too many of these nonsense things and it's tough to borrow and stuff. So one to $5 million, US listed. I don't like Chinese- uh, you see my, Chinese you see my sadness companies. when you- you see my sadness when you said that. <laughs> what? Oh yeah, I don't. So sometimes I go to like the five hundred million range. But anybody like I could come up with like three hundred million dollars short ideas in my like dreams. It's like that adds no value to be talking about these. Sure. There's just too many, and it's just like it doesn't add. So one to five billion dollars. You know, U.S. traded preferably U.S.-based companies. And my, my kind of bread and butter, what I, I, I absolutely love and hit a home run with every time, in my view, is where the numbers look great, where the Wall Street models say one thing, but the customer experience is something else. So I am hyper, 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 hyper focused on trying to understand the customer experience and a company's relationship with its customers. I'll give an example, uh, Root Insurance. I have no position. Root did IPO maybe two years ago. I wrote about it. It's fallen like 90% since. And what they were is they were like a car insurance company. And they said, you download our app and we track your location 24-7 for two weeks. We use that tracking to determine whether or not you're a good driver because we can see the times you drive, where you drive, when you drive, you know, the speeds you drive, returning radiuses, whatever. And we can use this data to only give insurance to the best drivers. And because that, we save people money and give them low rates. That was kind of the pitch. And it turns out they like their technology is not better than anyone else. And they give you lower rates. And then every six months, 
they would dramatically raise your rates, like 30, 40%, regardless of like your driving skills. Even in the pandemic, when no one was driving, they were raising everybody's rates. And I just sent FOIA requests to regulators and it's dozens and dozens of consumer complaints. And not just as a consumer complaints about unfair, like, renewals on insurance rates, I see over and over again, people like are having difficulty canceling their root insurance subscriptions or like insurance contracts. And like, you'd get like a 70 year old lady writing like, you know, the like the Attorney General in Florida saying like, look, I'm old, I have spent 20 hours trying to cancel my root insurance. And they just keep taking advantage of me. And I call I email whatever. And you get lawyers like representing uh, Spanish speaking clients who are like, yeah, they're just taking advantage of the Spanish speaking community, they totally cannot cancel cancel these subscriptions and they're like, and, and it's like, so Wall Street sees this and they say, oh, the cohorts are getting more profitable over time and the churn actually isn't that bad and whatever. But in reality, you're just screwing people over and making it difficult to cancel. And eventually they will cancel. Like the business actually isn't that valuable. And you could just write that up. And like, to me, it's just so obvious. Like there's not a there there, the, the, the value isn't there. And, you know, the, the stock's fallen 90% since IPO. All these tiger cubs who probably are the fanciest models in the world are like, wait, what happened? Why did our models work? And I'm like, you're screwing over people. They want to cancel and they can't get out. They're going to find a way. So those things, like, I, I get so excited when you say the numbers look good and they look like one thing, but the customer experience is bad. They're screwing over people. And most importantly, the market doesn't understand they're screwing over people. If, if if you say, oh, you know, it's difficult to cancel a Comcast contract. Well, everybody knows that and it's priced in and it's like trading. But, it, but if you say like this fast growing, like new tech insurance company is actually making it impossible for their customers to leave, I will get super interested in that. So one to $5 billion US company, typically trading at a high multiple of like revenue or profit, typically not always, but you know, a newer listing, something that IPO or went through a SPAC in the last two years. Um, in terms of like what, what I think will go down, like any SPAC deals are kind of good to write about or US listed Chinese companies, but I can do deeper research on just like bigger US companies with a lot of customer relationships because where I think I'm world classes, I filed dozens of public record requests at st for, with state attorney generals state attorneys general for consumer complaints against customers. I read hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of consumer complaints every year. And that's how I think I really add value and do different work for the paid subscribers of my newsletter. Gotcha. So, so you gave your, your criteria when you're looking, you know, just in general for, for that, but where does, where does some of your deal flow or your idea generation come from? Is it from subscribers, Twitter, I mean, I'm sure it's all the above, but like what's been your best source for saying, oh, that's something I, because actually this is one of the questions that was asked on Twitter from Baruch Schwartz, you know, given your prolific output, you know, how much time does it usually take you to determine if a deep dive is then warranted and then, so, then do the deep dive? So those are like kind of two questions. How, what do yeah. I do after getting it? And how do I go with ideas? I, for coming up with ideas, I'm a Twitter addict, Bobby. You know this. I, I spend three hours a day on Twitter. I have like 10 different folders and I'm, I'm sending all these tweets to, I have a folder called Bear Cave Investigate for potential investigations. I like, like I, I, I probably bookmark 200 tweets in a day. I follow all these accounts that like uh, you tweet, tweet interesting stuff. And that's how I come up with a lot of ideas. I've opened DMs, my emails be really publicly available. Probably every day, you know, maybe multiple times a day, someone DMs me saying, you should look at this scam or that scam or whatever. You know, every once in a while, an old person will be like, yeah, a broker's telling me to buy this weird SPAC deal. Should I do it? And I'm like, let me look into that company too. Um, you know, I, I do subscribe to some of these like press release services that like highlight shady companies. Uh, there's a few like IR firms that I think are questionable and they list their clients on their website. So I always check their websites to see if they have any new big clients. Uh, I do SEC full text search tools for like certain like, like early bird capital takes a lot of SPACs public. And I think of their last 18 SPACs, 17 are like trading down. So like I, I every month I check to see if they have any new SPAC deals. Uh, there's a service that sends me like an email with like every new SPAC transaction. And I usually skim that. So it's kind of everywhere. But, you know, Twitter is I, I found the most useful tool for just finding that just like early seed of just like literally Roblox. 
Uh, the reason I looked into Roblox and conducted my full investigation there was somebody tweeted about how they were suing a YouTuber. And then I was like reading about that. I'm like, this is interesting. Let me dig around more. Let me see lawsuits. And that's kind of like how my interest perks up. And that's good because it's different than the typical thing on Wall Street, which is an idea dinner or consulting service or whatever nonsense. Like if you're getting it from like as close to the customer relationship, as close to like their actual like impact on society, you're going to, I think, get much better results. So that's what I do. And then after I get it, like how long does it take? That can vary. So for the really good stuff, it does take some time. It usually takes more than two weeks because I needed like to have more time to read and do FOIAs and stuff. But because I do it like it, so often, it I can kind of spin out a good bear cave article, a decent bear cave article, honestly, probably in like just three days of hyper focus. Um, it's one of those things where it's like, if you want to get really good at pottery, you know, don't just focus on making one thing really good. Do, do it over a hundred times. And then you get really good at making like, you know, pottery um, just by getting the reps in and doing it over and over again. So, you know, to make a really good bear cave article, it probably would be like four weeks. I'm usually working on more than one at one point in time and sometimes drop ones if it's not panning out as I hope. Um, but, but, but just to do like an interesting article, like sometimes it'll be a Sunday and I don't know what I'm writing about on Thursday. And I'm just like, well, let me like spend two hours on this company. And, you know, some of the early things I look at for if I, if I, if I need to get something done is I'll see who the auditor is, the audit partner is, I'll read SEC comment letters. I know like if I need an ending, I always look at the risk factors and sometimes I can like end with a quote from the risk factors because those always, you know, have some ominous warning. So you kind of learn all these tricks from doing it over and over again. But the reason I'm so prolific is once you keep doing it over and over again, you, you get better at doing it. And like, you know, I work out of my apartment. I got no commute. I'm 23. I have no kids and other obligations. I, you know, I can really spend like 16 hours in a day, just like laser focused on a company. I have this insane ability, Bobby to like, I put a song on like a four minute song and I just keep repeating the song and I'm like in hyper-focus mode on these companies and I'll read through the 10K and I'll use all these services. And like, you know, I, I usually work, this is gonna sound odd, Bobby. My work hours are between the hours of 10 PM and like 4 AM. Those are like when I do my best work with a song on repeat, hyper-focused on a company. And that's how a Bear Cave article gets done. Are you sure you're a newsletter writer and you're not like a software developer? <laughs> it's the same, same hours right <laughs> so so all right that you hit on quite a quite a bit there I, I was gonna ask you about your research process and uh you pretty much answered it um what what would you say is the the thing that investors get the most wrong or or what confuses them the most when they think about you know short selling and, and exposing some of these potential frauds out there. I think one thing investors get wrong the most is just too focused on the numbers. People will be talking about ratios, PE ratios, peg ratios, cash flow, cash flow, X cash, blah, 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 like adjusting stock-based comp. And you kind of lose like sight of the most important thing. Is this company providing overwhelming value for customers? Is this company providing decent value for customers? Is this company screwing customers over? The companies that are providing overwhelming value and have a ton of room to raise prices and have a ton of happy customers, those will always, almost always do really well over the long run. And the companies that are over earning and have customers ready to leave, especially if the market doesn't understand it, though the will almost always do poorly in the long run. The other thing I would say is that you can tell a lot from management history. Like I always look at every board member to see their track record and like all the executives in the past companies they worked at. And I don't know why it just, it just, like if you see people, like if all your board members have served on other boards for companies that like fell 90%, that company I just know is going to do poorly. Even if you can't pinpoint a reason why, it's like losers lose and winners win. And like that, that's something I just like have found out. You never see like, you know, with the joint, it's just like the board members had served on like penny stocks that went to zero. And it's just like, you know, like, I don't know why, just such a turnoff. And it, it, you just don't see it 
where people like who have a history of serving on boards that collapse just do great and like hit it out of the park. Um, so losers lose, winners win. Some people try to make exceptions for that, but I don't. Uh, focus a ton on the customer experience. The mistake people make is they focus way too much on the numbers. Like I spend not a lot of time looking at numbers at all. Uh, you know, I think the the a really junior mistake would just be not understanding kind of where consensus is. If everybody knows, oh, this is a payday lender, they treat company cu customers poorly, and you come out and be like, oh, look, they're treating customers poorly. No one would care because it's priced in. So you need to understand what's like understood by the market. Market and what's not understood by the market. But the biggest mistake is people just way too focused on the numbers, not understanding the actual uh, company or like their relationship with customers. Along with customer experience, do you also look at, you know, the company culture as well? Because sometimes that could throw you off, right? Where you're like, wow, this seems like a nice company culture. It seems like people are happy to work there. And yet the customer experience might suck or it's vice versa. Or, well, then the easiest one obviously is both, right? Bobby, I, I actually love that question. So for for I read Glassdoor reviews all the time. It's kind of funny. You can tell when they're fake. Like sometimes SPACs will have their employees write fake ones. And if there's like 10 five-star reviews in a two-hour period, you know, that's like probably an HR stunt. Um, I think especially for the bigger companies, like you could just you could start a news that are focused just on big company corporate culture. Like what's the turnover at IBM versus places with a high degree of turnover at these big like culture is kind of I forget what the quote is, but like culture is your future in a way. It, 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 it doesn't get reflected in the financial results now, but it's going to be reflected in the financial results in the future. So if I see someone with like a great, like high energy culture, I definitely want to bet on that. And I, I think that goes hand in hand with uh, customer relationships. If you have a great culture, you're probably delivering overwhelming value for customers. Like you mentioned Substack. These are both private companies, but Substack and Tegas, two places that I think are really high energy doing great things. Like if they were publicly traded, I just want to bet on them because the people there are smart and have like high energy and are cool. Um, so I think culture matters a lot. It's a little tougher to like, you know, get, get especially with small companies, put your finger on um, other than reading Glassdoor reviews. But I, I do think that's a really good signal. Absolutely. But, and well, and it's also something, at least when you're in looking in the one to $5 million range, like you can't, there, there's more there. I would say micro caps, you know, some of these are very small, you know, they have very small employee counts, you know, for the most part. Um, so you don't, there's not really much there. Um, but that's when talking with management, maybe doing a site visit is that helps. I mean, have you ever done any kind of that kind of uh, uh, work or, or not really? No, and not because I don't think it's necessarily helpful. It's it just that, you know, when you're kind of criticizing companies, I, I want to do good well, work. I want to right. get the facts right. And I want to write my article and then I want to move on. Um, I want to get like, you know, my opinions right and stated correctly and everything. And, and so, so to just do it, meeting with management, like management isn't going to give you anything helpful, especially that you get, that they get the sense that you're not super positive on them. One interesting thing from my dear brunch, I always ask people like the investors, what are your kind of research process? What do you do that no one else does? Half the people say, you know, we get a ton of value from meeting with management. It's an important part of our process. We had like 380 contacts with management last year. And then Half the people say is we never meet with management. They never give you anything. They're drag FD, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's kind of fascinating to be in the market. There really seems to be two camps of people, smart people in both, meet with management all the time, never meet with management. And like, I, I, I still haven't figured out which one I would be. Like, I, I think if you're concentrated and long-term, you probably want to meet with management. I, I think you can get a lot by like, I always... One thing I always do, Bobby, sorry to ramble, uh, is I, I listen to interviews with them. I listen to like them speak at least for five minutes, preferably longer. And I, I try to determine, you know, are they in it for the money? Is this guy just a money maker or is this somebody who's hyper passionate? So Twitter, I think a lot of the people there aren't in it for the money. They're, they're, they're passionate about what they do. Well, uh, Facebook seems to be a much more money grabbing corporation focused on the money and not so much the user experience. Uh, so that's one thing I do. And another thing is 
this is going to sound a little weird, is I try to figure out, are they a mom or are they a babysitter? So what does that mean? Like, you know, a babysitter is a custodian. You pay them to do a job. They might want to do the job well, and they want to make sure nothing goes bad, and they want to, like, make sure things run smoothly. But a mom is, like, there's a, just, there's a different intangible feel, even if, like, the job responsibilities are similar between a mom and a babysitter. A mom has their heart and soul in the business. There's absolutely nothing they won't do to make sure their kids succeed. They, they, the, 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 the business is their baby. You, you can't, you could kill them, and they'd still try to fight for the business it's like it's their heart their soul their everything so try to figure out if they're a mom or babysitter are they like is there a heart and soul in it or are they just a custodian wanting to do well for the money i'll bet on the moms of the world anytime over the babysitters got it have you ever had to have you ever had a conversation with with management team after maybe you you posted one of your articles because i'm sure they would love to address some of the things that you you discuss, right? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I have you ever had that? Uh, I remember with Malincrotz, this is freshman year of college. I was talking to their IRF and I'm a freshman and it's Cole Lanham is the IRF. And he, he was, I was asking him all these questions and he knew I was writing like critical articles and eventually he just snaps at me. He's like, you're a nobody. Why am I even talking to you? You can go pound sand, blah, 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 blah. I'm never talking to you again. You're such an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And like, I had like such bad experiences when I was young talking to like IRFs and management when I'd ask critical questions that, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, it would be great to sit down and say, hey, these are my concerns. What are your opinions on them? And then have an honest conversation. And maybe you can do that in Twitter spaces with like a long, but in reality, you know, a company is going to be mainly focused on like, how can we intimidate you into like not writing about us anymore? And like, you know, like, what can we like, like, it's just, that's not how the world works, unfortunately. You know, real intellectual, honest, uh, intellectually honest conversations are kind of a, a thing in the past. Yo, I got to ask about that too. I mean, like, listen, you, you mentioned how the private investigator was sent to your house when you're in college or, or with, with the carry case. I mean, what, what are those, what are these experiences like now? I mean, I'm sure when you were younger, it was probably a lot scarier, you know, hearing from folk, maybe, you know, cease and desist, all that kind of crap. But I mean, how, how do you handle that? I mean, do you have your own in-house legal team to, <laughs> to help out in some of these situations? So uh, I've learned kind of, you know, how to avoid terrible situations where people try to intimidate you. I, I think generally smaller companies paradoxically put, put, put out the most pressure on people because the smaller companies can be total frauds or just complete nonsense. And this is their livelihood. If you criticize them and the stock goes down, they lose like their $3 million mansion they're going to buy from like the whatever nonsense stock offering. So by focusing more on the one to $5 billion companies, which, you know, might have serious issues, but there is something there. Usually it's not like complete smoke and mirrors. Usually uh, by focusing there, you know, you, you tend to get less intimidation as long as you're intellectually honest and try to stick to, you know, what you um, be, be somewhat fair. And uh, if you do that, and I think generally people, you know, if you're if you show you're 23, you got a big following, you're passionate about this. I write about a new company generally every two weeks. Uh, people will most of the time, I think their response is, you know, if there's a problem, let's address it. But if this guy has a point, like just let it blow over and move on. Where you can kind of get real pushback is smaller companies. And if you say, like Mark Cahotas, I'm going to spend the next six months of my life taking that. I want they need a book. Go in jail. Blah blah blah. I, I'm going to bury them, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's that, like, of course, you're going to make an enemy. And of course, they're going to intimidate you. And I'm not saying, you know, trying to put fraudsters in jail is not, that's a great thing. But that's totally not my style, because you you do make extreme enemies. Well, if you say, hey, I'm a newsletter author, and I, I dig into companies, and I write articles every two weeks on new companies, like, you know, it would, it, you know, that's a lot, I think, less risky of a proposition versus I'm going to expose people and put them in handcuffs and write the FBI and try to destroy their lives. Like, if you're going to try to destroy someone's life, of course, you're going to like get a lot more pushback. 
Absolutely. So then what, what was an investing experience or an experience throughout, you know, your career thus far? Uh, I mean, you've, you've said a few, but maybe there's one that you, that you haven't uh, talked about yet that really changed your career or, or, or maybe, I mean, maybe it's story three or four here, <laughs> but like, you know, what, what was, what's an experience that you'll never forget other than maybe some of the ones that you've said? Um, this is a little bit odd. This isn't necessarily a stock. I cold emailed a lot of people, uh, like investors when I was a little younger and I got to meet with Bill Ackman for an hour, like one-on-one off of cold email. And he just see, like, I know he's a little bit of a controversial person, but I, I really liked him and thought he's wicked smart and, you know, just fully aware of all these issues and, you know, just, and he was like kind of really passionate about stuff. So just getting to meet with him um, kind of changed my views on things a little. And I used to think, oh, I'm smarter than everybody in the world and all these hedge fund managers have no idea what I'm doing. And and I met with one of his analysts who is also just wicked smart. And I, I met with a few other hedge fund managers now. Like, I don't think everyone's wicked smart, but some people are just truly just like outstandingly smart. Just seeing how there's like really, really smart people you're competing against has made me more and more shift away from wanting to like trade in and out of stuff where now I I really think the only way that I can do really well, even if I have good research skills, isn't by like trading in and out of things. It's by just making like one or two or three big bets. It also keeps your life a lot simpler and you never want the allegation or perception of a conflict between what you write and what you own. So be just meeting all these really smart people have made me want to just like have a portfolio of one, two, three, four stocks. So you know this, but like over half my net worth is in Twitter stock right now, which hasn't done well. Um, And then Bitcoin is like my other only other major your position and you know i might buy a railroad stock these railroads seem to be like really well positioned for the future but i I, basically my investing philosophy now just beating with super smart people is i want to own one or two or three or four stocks and i only want to buy one stock a year and i want to take all the extra income from my newsletter and just consistently buy like a basket of one or two stocks and like i'm totally okay with that i know i like i know twitter is going to be very relevant 50 years from now. Facebook isn't, Instagram isn't, but Twitter totally is. You just, it just is. It has all these other ways to monetize and it's got staying power and durability. It's the ninth most visited website in the world. It's like crazy. It's a $25 billion company. It's absolutely nuts. It's so, it's just so crazy. It's not a 20, it shouldn't be a $25 billion company. And I'm happy to invest all my money in it every day for the next 10 years and just see where it goes. So that's my crazy philosophy is <laughs> if you want to invest in these things and you're, it, it's different when you're older, but when you're young and earning a lot of money and don't need to like worry about like blow up risk, it's like, I'm totally fine just owning one or two or three things and just buying more every week with the money from my newsletter. Nice. I like it, man. So then, you know, that was actually some pretty, some, some, some advice there for, for new investors, but is there anything else that maybe folks who are new to short selling newsletter, finance in general, you know, is there any other advice that that you would have for them? Subscribe to the bear cave, subscribe (laughs) to idea brunch, get a Twitter account and start following people. Twitter is an amazing learning tool. Uh, And if you're young, starting a podcast, starting an interview newsletter series, it's just such a great way to advance your career. Um, There's a lot of great tools online. Um, But you know, tw- tw- Twitter is just a superpower. You learn a lot. You meet a lot of new people. It's a distribution channel for content. Um, get a Twitter account and follow people. Follow you, Ben. Follow me. That's a, I think that's a great place to end it. So with that, Edwin, where can people go and find more information to follow you on Twitter and, uh, and to subscribe to your newsletter? Uh, just Google Edwin Dorsey Twitter. I'm at Stockjobber on Twitter. The Bear Cave newsletter. Google the Bear Cave newsletter for short, you know, seller content. And uh, Sunday's Idea Brunch is my interview series. And if you just go to my Twitter or Google Idea Brunch newsletter, it'll come up. Very cool. All right, dude. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next chat. Absolutely, Bobby. Thanks so much. Thank you.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.